we were still yeah. talking. We should just always talk into the mics because Tom can always throw it out, but he can never bring it in. Yeah. <laughs> That's not true. Sometimes I, I pull in words from other episodes. <laughs> Are you Wait, just like really? making the like piece of paper with a bunch of cutouts from a magazine, crazy <laughs> word diagrams <laughs> up from us? Hello, I am Chris, and today I like JavaScript. <laughs> I can't wait to put a robot filter on that. <laughs> It'd be an epic time oh, troll. Make us say the things that we don't want to say. Mm. Oh, I have a database. Yeah, I know. You could totally, you have this power. I feel like I have enough words that I could fill out a very specific two developers, like Siri app at this point with the two of them. Which, there's a huge market for that. Uh. <laughs> Item potent. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Chris. And I'm Steph. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot, hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So, Steph, how's it going? It's going great. I may have purchased a second mechanical keyboard, which I haven't told you about Wait, until you're just already now. Up to t- so last week when we left off on your adventures in mechanical keyboard land, you were considering a first purchase. You're already up to two. You haven't even received the first one, have you? I know. Well, that's part of the problem is I ordered one and it's going to take like at least a month to get here. So I'm being very impatient where I'm just craving having a mechanical keyboard now. And there's another one because I want one for home, too, because that seems, you know, I'm going to justify it here. It seems reasonable. I need one for the office and then I'm going to also have one at home. So I figured it's fair to start looking for the second one. But the problem is, is I've already gone up in quality might be a strong word, but I've already gone up to the next price point in the (laughs) keyboards that I'm looking at. Wow, you got anchored pretty quickly. You just immediately went past that. So I partially blame it on a friend who let me use their Happy Hacking keyboard, which has the, I think I'm going to say it correctly, the Toper switch keys. And they have a different feel. They have like a rubber dome. So some people, you kind of fall into the category of love or hate is what I'm sensing from the internets of people as to where they fall. The internets of people. The internets of people. (laughs) But they can be quieter and they just have a really nice feel to them. And some people think that they are higher quality and that they'll last a longer time and that the letters on the keys won't wear off. But I really enjoy typing on it. So I'm, I'm kind of hooked on that one now. So I'm looking at a keyboard. It's by Leopold is the name of the company. And that's it. That's my second keyboard. I, I think I'm going to have... arrive first. Yes, this one's going to arrive sooner. It's going to be here. It could be here in four to seven days. So it'll show up before the other one, which will satisfy my immediate craving for having a new keyboard. But yeah, I'm kind of kind of already going down the path that people warned me of where once you have one, you're going to have more. This is sort of why I never played World of Warcraft. I knew I just I couldn't be trusted or Emacs. That's the other thing that I've never allowed myself to do because I felt I could just uh, spend far too much time on them. I am going to buy a mechanical keyboard, though, so I'm excited for you to have a whole range of them for me to try out. I'll just have a bunch that you can test. Wait, what's with World of Warcraft? Why is that? Uh, It just takes up so much time. People can just fall into it and spend hours and hours and hours, and I could see myself doing that, and I wasn't drawn to it enough, and so I felt like the cost was high, and I was just like, "I, I can't be trusted with this, so I do not do it, much like Emacs. I've never experienced Emacs, but I was joking with someone in our Slack channel where I thought this is the problem with experiencing the finer things in life is now I want the finer things in life versus the ones that are more easily accessible. So it is what it is. So that's where I'm at. It's basically my story with type systems. Uh, Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. The <laughs> Once finer I experienced, things I was like, oh, life. no, the computer can tell me when I'm wrong. I really want that. 
But that's exciting. I look forward to borrowing your <laughs> new mechanical keyboards. Uh, I'll have so, a couple options for you, it seems like. Yes. There is the unfortunate reality that quite possibly the first one that you ordered will already be obsolete in your mind by the time it arrives. <laughs> so. Oh, they, they are pretty different. Yeah, because one is the Cherry MX Brown switches and then one's going to be the Tober. So yeah, I, I think I'll love them both. I will love them equally. <laughs> But unrelated to keyboards, last time we talked, we talked a bit about active support message verifier, which will generate a base 64 encrypted token. And you can also set an expiration for that token. So it seems really ideal for doing stuff like email verification, unsubscribe links, and implemented that. And it seemed great. But I ran into, or I should say we, myself and the client, we ran into an interesting problem where we noticed an error coming through where someone was trying to verify their email address, but it was coming through as an error because the token had been lowercased. And we don't know the specifics because we're having to guess a bit here, but it seems that the email client is normalizing the URL and lowercasing everything in the URL. So that's super weird and not what email clients should do. So we started talking about, should we rebuild this? Should we change how we're doing the feature? Do we need to stop using Active Support Message Verifier and go back to using a UUID, which is always lowercase, so we don't have to worry about this? And my initial reaction after talking about it a bit further was, well, what if we did nothing? Because this is a really weird thing that email clients shouldn't do. They're going to break a lot for their users who are getting their emails this way. So I suggested, what if we just hold off and see if this happens again? We'll go ahead and mark them as verified so that way they can sign in. We'll reach out to the individual that's having the error, but then let's just wait. And that seemed great. So we waited overnight and I highly suspected we weren't going to have this problem again. And the next day we got four more errors of the same problem. So we're at the point where we are having to switch over to stop using the message verifier because we need to stop using Base64. We're going to switch over to using a UUID instead. But it was just an interesting problem that I did not see that would come down the road. That is surprising, although thinking about it in terms of URLs, I don't know this to be true, but I wouldn't be surprised if the RFC and the actual like formal definition says that URLs are case insensitive. Similar to email addresses, I know that email addresses are case insensitive, and that's a good thing because if you have someone who's trying to essentially spoof you, like pretend to be me, you can get the adjacent email at gmail.com. So like Chris Toomey, but with a capital T, and that's the only difference. Those should not be different. And I think similarly, domains almost certainly, but then full URLs, maybe it's true that they're supposed to be case insensitive. But that becomes complicated because we send information, like this is a query param, I assume, tacked onto the URL. Uh, So it is part of the URL. So we do have, yeah, so we have slash whatever it is, slash verifications or something like that. Mm -hmm. So we didn't tack it on as like a string query parameter. Are you suggesting that if we did the string query parameter, it wouldn't? lowercase that, but No, I I think they're probably equal. My guess is whatever is doing this is doing it for the whole URL string, and that regardless of whether it's a query param or a path segment or part of the domain equally, this email client is like, whatever, it's a URL. I can do anything I want to it. But I'm trying to think if there's any other time that I've sent case-sensitive data in a URL. And I'm not coming up with anything, but I also (laughs) wouldn't intuitively think I can't do that or that that would be not a safe thing to do. So it's interesting that you ran into that. Have you ever implemented a feature for sort of like an invite token or anything like that? Because that's really the areas I think about, sort of like invite and email verification. Yeah, I guess 
I never do it myself. This is one of those areas of code that I don't write. Stuff with tokens, stuff with encryption, anything like that. Usually there's a library at play, and I'm just like, hey, library, can you take care of this for me? Hey, clearance, uh, devise, et cetera. I'm not remembering a time where I've actually had to manually implement it myself, and I've not run into any issues, certainly not like this one. So I'm not like super surprised, but I am surprised. I'm also surprised that the email client is doing this. So even if it's true that URLs should be thought of as case insensitive, still like be easy, email client. Don't <laughs> downcase my stuff. That's not cool. I was initially just irked by it, and then I just became really fascinated. I wanted to understand. And there's a chance that it's not the email client because this email is going out to larger companies and organizations. So perhaps they're running software that is then scanning the emails, and perhaps that software is what is lowercasing some of the text before it's being delivered to the end user. So I'm not sure at what point what's responsible for it. But it's interesting that we just then had to shift away from using that approach just because we encountered enough issues. And reading about some of the blog posts that people have shared about using Active Support Message Verifier, a lot of folks use it for unsubscribe links, which totally makes sense. But this just seems to be another interesting data point to be cautious when using it in case you run into this problem. I also saw one other tidbit that we didn't run into yet since we just released it. Now we're having to change it, where the token that's generated by the message verifier can have double forward slashes in it. So there's also the need to make sure that you are safe encoding the token for the URL to make sure that that doesn't cause a problem as well. Forward slashes are part of the, they're in base 64, I guess is my question now that I think about it fully. I didn't think, or like forward slash in general is a character that shows up in base 64 encoded strings. It seems to be. I saw an issue open on Rails where someone was talking about it, and then they had a conversation around making sure that you're encoding that value so that way it's safe for URLs. Maybe the chances are really low that you run into that, but one person happened to generate a value that had two forward slashes. I'll have to double check, but I just thought that was an interesting caveat as well. It's interesting because that hints at the fact that like URLs, I think of them as a string, but they're actually structured data. And then parsing a URL seems like it should be super easy. You just get the domain bit and then you take off some, oh, no, what if there are double slash? Oh, no, that's a protocol. <laughs> and then immediately it, it explodes and the regular expression for it becomes you know something that you would wear on a T-shirt. Wait, what? <laughs> something you'd wear on a T-shirt? There's, I have actually seen the RFC for email addresses. So validating an email address seems like it should be easy. Turns out, of course, it's not. It's incredibly difficult. And there is, I think, in the RFC for email addresses, a formal definition of a regular expression that properly validates an email address. And it's giant. And people have gotten T-shirts with it printed on it because it's just this big block of angry text. It's like, (laughs) you think stuff's easy? It's not easy. This is what it takes to validate an email address. This is what we're dealing with. Uh, And so I imagine the URL is similar, if not much more complicated, because Mm. it's almost a superset, maybe. I don't know. I'm talking way outside my knowledge base now. (laughs) But yeah, that's interesting. And actually, now that I think about it, I have implemented exactly what you're doing. I've used Active Support Message Verifier. That's why I knew about it. And uh, it worked. It just worked for me. My guess is Outlook is the answer. It could be, although we certainly tested it in Outlook as well. And it worked? And it worked. Maybe older versions of Outlook? Yeah, it could be older versions of Outlook. We're really not confident. I'm excited to hear back because I think someone on the team was going to reach out to those users just to find out, just be like, hey, we noticed an Mm -hmm. error, help them out, and then also inquire about what system they're using so we can have more intel. And then another interesting conversation came up around the idea of do email verification tokens need to expire? And I'm curious if you have thoughts on that. 
Well, like my hot take as you just ask the question is I hear the word token and expire and my brain says, yes, of course, obviously, definitely, super duper yes. But to not just hot take it, (laughs) do email verification tokens need to expire? So this email verification does not sign you in. It just marks the user as having verified their account. Okay. I could be open to a conversation in which we say that it does not. My question would be, what's the cost of having it expire? Like, do we have a lot of users that are somehow missing the two-week window that we're providing to them? And that's where we're making a bad workflow. I would rather be the overly conservative, safe version. With anything like this, when it has like security implications, I tend to go very, very conservative. But that said, off the top of my head, nothing comes to mind. It seems like a relatively safe action. But I don't know, CVEs happen every other week. So... <laughs> How am I supposed to stop those if not by being extremely conservative at the edges of my system? That's fair. That's my reaction as well. My initial reaction is any link or any token that identifies a user should expire. That's the part that feels concerning to me. But if I push myself to figure out why it matters, if the worst thing they can do is mark a user as verified, I have trouble thinking of concerns with that, although I'm not the best criminal. <laughs> so. <laughs> Perhaps that's also tough, too. I I haven't really thought about how to exploit what someone could do with that. But I just thought it was something that I immediately had the same hot take. I'm like, yes, it needs to expire. But then I searched OWASP, which is the Open Web Application Security Project, to see if they had any suggestions or regulations around how to handle email verification. And they do stress that email accounts should be verified, but they didn't suggest anything around whether tokens that don't give you access to sign in if those need to expire. So I think, I don't know what we'll go with, but I was just curious what you thought. That's uh, pretty much everything for my week. How's your week been? It's been good. Actually, just yesterday, an episode of the React podcast came out that I was uh, lucky enough to join. So I was very excited to see that go out into the world. Yay. And that's with Michael Chan, correct? Yes. So Michael was a guest on the Bike Shed a month or two back. And then we flipped things around and I joined him on the React podcast talking about GraphQL, TypeScript, React, Elm, all my favorite stuff. He dug in and asked me a lot of hard questions and made me think about what I believe about those technologies. And uh, it was fantastic. He's an incredibly talented interviewer and just kind and smart human being. And so it was such a pleasure getting to sit down with him and chat and be on the other side of this whole podcasting thing. Yeah, I remember listening to the episode when he was on the bike shed. And I was really impressed. Like he says a lot of very nice kind things, like not only being great and very smart at what he does, but he just came to the table with this energy and this positivity. And it was very uplifting to me when I listened to that episode. It kind of recharged me a bit to be like, yeah, the world is great and there's so much stuff to learn. And and I really appreciate him. I'm excited to listen to the episode that you're on. Yeah, Michael is uh, an incredibly empathetic human being. And I think that's super important in software development. I think it's perhaps an undervalued skill or undervalued character trait. And so I love that he brings that voice to everything that he does. And it was, again, such such a fun experience getting to uh, join him on, on his show. So yeah, uh, we'll have a link in the show notes in case anyone wants to listen to that. But that was exciting to see that going into the world. And some people said nice things on Twitter and all those fun things that sometimes happen when the internet is nice, which always surprises me when it happens, but it does. So here we are. Thank you, nice people of the internet. <laughs> yes. Uh, but in other news, this week I ran into one of, I would say, not quite a full blind spot, but one of the areas that I'm less familiar with, uh, which is logging. 
we had an issue in a production system where the system was not behaving in a way that we expected. It was basically not doing some work in an automated fashion that we expected it to do. There's some files, it's supposed to see them, and queue an import job, download some CSVs, yada, yada, yada. But it just wasn't happening, and it was silently failing, worst kind of failure. So we ended up scanning through the code, couldn't find any issue, and so we just decided to add some logging, which was an interesting thing. And I always feel somewhat weird with logging. I feel like logging is more of an art form than a lot of the other things that we do. Mm. Finding that right level of where should we be logging, how much, how do we make sure the signal-to-noise ratio is useful. And so in this case, we sprinkled a few different lines saying, you know, this happened, we saw this, so we're doing this, et cetera. Turns out at the end of the day, the problem was a typo. I had typoed one of oh, the. No. Yeah, it was not even a typo in code, a typo in configuration. And so the system was silently no opping. Oh. Whoops. But at least the logging code helped me figure that out. Oh, so you did add the logging first. And then that's what led to the discovery of the typo? I eventually figured out the typo. And then I was able to look back through my command history. It was basically an environment variable configuration that said, run this automated process for these different user accounts. So the the system that we're working in has a handful of much larger user accounts, like 20 or 25 or something like that. And so I was turning it on for specific named groups within the system. I just typoed the name of the group. And I was using where to do the query. And so where would be like, sure, I didn't find anything that matches what the text you gave me. And so it was silently doing nothing. And by adding the logging, the logging was still producing nothing. It was like, no, we're not doing anything, which then made it very clear. And then I looked back through my command history and just the typo was there in my command history. I was like, oh, really? (laughs) Really? But I did get to explore the active support tagged logging functionality as part of this, which I had heard about, but had never actually used. Have you worked with that at all? No, I don't know about this. So my rough understanding after one day of playing around with it, you can say active support tagged logging, pass it a tag, and then a block. And so within the context of that block, any methods that run and anything that logs will have this additional bit of context that you defined when you called that method. So you say active support tagged logging, CSV import. You are now within the context of CSV importing in any log line. If you say like, it went well, it will say bracket CSV importing went well. And then you can keep adding to that so you can nest within it. And so in this case where we had the different large group accounts, I was able to say, you know, this thing for this account, this happened. And just keep adding that additional context. And so the deeper nested code didn't actually need to be aware of the context. It implicitly had access to it because the the tagged logger had been configured to do that. So is that different than if you just call like rails.logger.info and pass it some information? Yes. So you're still calling that same line, rails.logger.info, mm-hmm. okay. and you pass it whatever string, the message that you want to log out. But when it gets logged, it will have the additional pieces prepended to that line. Ooh. So instead of saying successful import and just that, it will say CSV importing customer123 successful import. And so you get this additional context deeply nested within your you know, call stack, which is pretty cool. Well, that's really nice. I'm going to start using that because I usually spend more time writing those log messages thinking I need to add context of where this is happening. So that's great. Yeah. Yep. So the context is sort of persistent anywhere within that block. So your deeper nested code doesn't necessarily need to know or have access to all of the different parameters, that context is now implicitly available because of the 
Like there may be different ways to enter into that inner code path. Mm -hmm. And so the inner code path doesn't need to know about how it was called. That's implicitly stored in this logger now. So that was a really cool thing. Deeply unfortunate for me that it turned out that it was just a typo. But here we are, and I got to spend some time logging. Typos are tough, but they always... They make me smile in kind of a sad way because it stinks to go through having to fix them. But when I was teaching the intro to web development courses in the past, like that's one of the things that I always bring up. I'm like, typos are real. Even professional developers, like we're going to struggle with them. So I'll have another story I could share with students <laughs> related to, yes, this really happens to professional web developers. <laughs> way, <have> more typos. <laughs> way more than I wish it did. But yeah, here we are. <laughs> professional typos. Those are, uh, those are the sort that we make. But yeah, logging overall is, it's, I think, similar to SQL for me, where it's a just-in-time knowledge sort of thing. I don't retain SQL knowings. I have to relearn how to join and how to cross-join and window functions and all the like deeper, more complex SQL stuff just doesn't stay in my head for some reason. Logging, similarly, I never know quite what level I want to log. It, it almost seems like the only way I get there is by having a production system that is behaving oddly and then I need to instrument it with these log messages that help me start to understand it. But I almost always, it's a retrofitting as opposed to a forward-looking sort of thing. I don't know if you've had different experiences with that. or Yeah, logging's a bit tricky because as you mentioned, it's something that we add when something goes wrong. And I feel like the more experience that I've gathered, I will typically start to add it in the beginning more just because I'll know like, oh, I'm doing CSV import or I'm doing some process and there's a chance this will fail and I'm not going to tell the user. So I'm not going to know in that way or have an error, but I want to notify myself if something goes wrong. So I feel like I'm starting to get better at adding that beforehand, before shipping that feature that is part of that feature is having logging. But yeah, I often forget to and I don't go back and add it until there's a problem and I need more details. That's basically where I'm at. The one other thing that I've looked at but haven't really explored too much is the idea of structured logging, which my understanding is just JSON lines as the way that you're doing the logging as opposed to an arbitrarily formatted string of text. It's a JSON line. So there's different keys and attributes and things that you can filter and do more structured querying against. Um, I've worked with one client that was using that, and it's the queries that we were able to write were a little more useful, but it does make it less human readable, so it's sort of a trade-off. I guess logging is rarely, I'm just sitting there reading the logs, <laughs> looking at the matrix as it streams by, but... It's a Friday night, just looking at the logs. <laughs> oh, what do you do on your Friday nights? <laughs> That's interesting. So it's a JSON formatted mm -hmm. value, and then is that easier to parse? Does that help like any system that you're sending it to, like any other third-party logging system that you're sending the logs to to make it searchable? I want to say Datadog is the one that I've worked with. And so they'll actually, I think, index into those JSON documents, I guess is the word for them, JSON objects, and be able to filter and sort and aggregate against the keys and the values of that rather than when it's an arbitrary string you can potentially aggregate, like, say, a keyword that you want to search for, and then what's the occurrence of that, but it's less structured data. Mm -hmm. And so going in the direction of more structured data means that we can do more meaningful things. But again, I am I know that much about it. I know the words, I think. I may even just be misrepresenting it, but I'm intrigued by that. And this week of digging back into logging stuff has made me think about it a little bit more. Yeah, I like that idea. I may be misconstruing this as well, but it makes me think that if I have like a JSON structure for the logs that I'm sending, I may also tend to send more messages that way. Like if I can have related to this particular service, I may also log when it's done and then also log when it's successful because it's all being grouped and allocated to this one particular process. 
I'm sure I could do that now, but with the JSON structure, that seems like a really nice use of it. Structure seems good. I'm a fan of structure. Yeah. Well, speaking of things that we want more of, we have some follow-up on a couple of listener questions, conversations, and things. And so uh, I want to thank everyone who's sending these in. In this particular case, Peter Vandermeulen sent some notes about VS Code and TypeScript. Uh, He particularly linked to a few things and actually even provided a a quick video that showed off some of the newer features of NeoVim and a plugin, coc.vim is the name of the plugin. It looks like it's actually heading in a really great direction, starting to have... IntelliSense type autocomplete and little pop-up windows that are showing type inference and all that kind of stuff. So some really great functionality that actually I did not realize how far things had come along. So Peter, thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, we'll include links to the relevant things in the notes, but maybe, maybe the day is upon us when Vim can finally catch up to some of the other editors out there. And I think you just referenced this as NeoVim. Yes. I'm not familiar with NeoVim. Would you talk about it a little bit? NeoVim is a fork of Vim. It was forked a couple of years back. The folks who forked it had some issues with the way that Vim itself was being written and maintained. So they decided to take Vim in a slightly different direction, try and modernize it a little bit. And there are a number of goals to the project they want to make. NeoVim is especially geared towards being embeddable within other systems. So there are other editors that have been built on top of NeoVim that are full graphical editors like VS Code, where it's you know big window as opposed to in your terminal, mm. but it's embedding NeoVim within that. So that's one of the goals. They wanted a little more modernization of the graphics and some other things. So it's a deeply impressive project, and I think it's actually pushed Vim, the core project, in a really positive way as well. Like Vim recently got some async functionality that makes stuff better. But yeah, NeoVim is a fork. You can brew install NeoVim or other package managers and then run that. And it mostly is meant to be fully compatible, but with some other niceties that come along. Do I have to use NeoVim separately of Vim? Like they're either option A or option B. I'm not combining them. Yes. Yeah, it's a different version of Vim. So they forked the code base of Vim and then they started adding on these new things. And then they pulled from Vim, they backported other fixes that have made it into Vim proper. But you would use NeoVim or NVim as the command line way to start that instead of Vim. Cool. Yeah, that sounds exciting. Just because I've heard great things about VS Code, as you discussed before, but I, I do love Vim. I love staying in that world. So if I can stay there, that would be excellent. Yeah, so thank you again, Peter, for sharing that information and keeping the hope alive. Uh, and I believe we have another bit of feedback about one of our conversations. Yes, we do. John Priest of Pinterest Engineering sent us a really nice email that linked us to an article that he had shared on the Pinterest Engineering blog, and it's called The Dead Code Society. John was listening to a previous episode where you and I were talking about net negative lines of code, and in this article, the Dead Code Society celebrates the retirement of code from active service. And if I can read just a little bit from the article, because I think this really resonates with both of you and I strongly. The Dead Code Society has helped balance that trend by celebrating the retirement of code from active service. Retired code remains in source control to be remembered and consulted, but it no longer occupies a prominent place in our workspaces, build systems, or cognitive periphery. And to clarify, the Dead Code Society is a Slack channel that they've created to celebrate the removal of code. So yeah, I think this hits home for you and I in several ways. One, I like the very positive outlook on the removal of code because it addresses some of the topics that you and I have discussed in the past about code being a liability and how we want to simplify our products. And if we can have a successful product with less code, that's a great win. And there's the emotional attachment that comes with code where we'll often have trouble removing code because we have attachment to it and we feel it's important to keep, but separating ourselves from that code and knowing that code's not part of our identity so we can retire it and let it go. 
one of my other favorite takeaways from this article, specifically the line about celebrating the retirement of code from active service, I think strongly implies that we should have cake every time that we remove code. I think so. If we achieve the net negative lines, then we have earned ourselves cake. Let them eat cake. Let them. I'll, I'll even take it sooner. Like even if we don't have net negative lines of code, you remove some code. Let's have cake. Anytime there is any red in a pull request, we get to have cake. That seems like a safe way for an honest. <laughs> <laughs> seems like a, a healthy reward. <laughs> but yes, thank you, John, for sending that in. And uh, we will certainly have a link to that in the show notes as well. And also, we have a listener question that we can respond to today. Indeed, we do. We actually have a bunch of them queued up. So again, thank you to everyone who keeps sending them in. We're going to keep going through these as they come in. And if you want to send one in, that's hosts at bikeshed.fm. And this week, our question comes from Dan Weaver. So Dan's question is about whether or not to rewrite an app. So uh, he's describing the app that he's built. It's the first app that I ever built, and it's built on 3.2.14 version of Rails uh, with a couple of naive choices baked in there. And so his question is, have you ever been involved in an app rewrite against an existing database? Upgrading all the way from 3.2.14 to 6 looks like an enormous undertaking. Integration tests requiring JS broke a long time ago, and I haven't had time to get them working again. This would need to be addressed before doing any kind of upgrade. I'm the sole developer designer on this app. We don't have the budget to hire out for upgrades. My main concern is the database. Whether to rewrite in a format 100% compatible with the existing data or to optimize then import data to a new database. A couple of quick data points about the app. It's six years old. It's got 15 models or controllers, 12 service objects, 50% test coverage, 17,000 users, which is actually, that's a pretty good number, 500,000 database records, 12 database tables. So... What would be your thoughts on this, Steph? Yeah, this is super interesting because on one hand, it sounds like the test suite is broken. Do we know why the test suite's broken? I don't believe so. The statement is just that the integration test requiring JS broke a long time ago. Okay. So. So I think my initial reaction to everything you just said is I'd be really intrigued and in knowing what the path forward would look like to upgrade incrementally. So instead of trying to jump from 3.2 to the latest rails, but try to go from 3.2 to maybe it's a higher number within the three versioning, maybe it's 3.8, or maybe you do go all the way to four and then continue to go from there and see what wins you're going to achieve. Rewrites always just make me nervous because then you're going to have two applications in which you're trying to develop features, assuming that your product can't stop moving forward and introducing new features or addressing bugs for users. You now have two products that you're trying to develop at the same time and keep up with parity. And it sounds like, I think they'd mentioned that they're the only developer. So that sounds like a big undertaking to have two apps to manage. So my initial, my very gut reaction is try to upgrade slowly and then see what wins you get that way versus going for the rewrite. What do you think? That was my first inclination. Uh, and that's definitely where my initial thoughts whenever we hear discussions of a rewrite, I almost always say like, oh, I don't know, rewrites are scary for exactly the reasons that you outlined. That said, in this particular case, I'm really interested in the fact that this doesn't sound like a giant application, mm -hmm. particularly the 12 database tables. That seems like not a huge number. So the amount of data that's represented, there are 500,000 database records, which is a reasonable number. I'm, mostly I'm interested in 17,000 users. So there's a lot of people using this application. And yet the fact that there are only 12 database tables, I'm wondering what type of application we're working with. Is this a relatively straightforward CRUD app that just happens to have a really active user base? In that case, I might actually consider a full rewrite. 
if I were to consider that, I likely would not want to bring over the data exactly as it is, because my guess, based on some of the earlier comments, is that that data model is also not going to be something that we want to keep around. Dan mentions that you know some of the choices he made early on were somewhat naive. I would probably want a chance to reset and probably build a more robust data model, uh, maybe more constraints, foreign keys, et cetera. Likely those things, my guess is those would not be present. If they're not present, then I definitely want to have them. And so maybe the new data, it, it will be difficult to map it in. But I would definitely look at upgrading because upgrading is great. And if you have functionality that exists, start from there. But the size and complexity of this makes me think like, oh, maybe we could do it. But it's hard to answer in the abstract. Rewrites are an incredibly complicated concept. Yeah, I like that assessment that since it is a smaller application, it feels a little less scary to do the rewrite. But definitely still scary. I agree. Like, I think you started from absolutely the right place, which is rewrites are scary. But even the fact that it's scary doesn't necessarily make it the wrong approach. It just means that there's considerations. So maybe they can pause development on this application to then proceed with the rewrite if that feels the right move for the company. My only concern is that's a type of, or not my only concern, I guess I have a couple, but with that in mind, that's an easy thing to say, yes, we will pause development on the current application and we will focus on the rewrite. And then at some point, a bug is going to happen or at some point something's going to come up and then there's going to be that tough conversation of, well, we said that we were going to pause so we could focus on the rewrite and now we're in a state where we feel like we actually do need to sink some time into the existing application for current users. And so it comes back to the working on two applications at the same time. So yeah, I'm, I think I'm still in the camp of trying to upgrade. But if that goes horribly, if trying to upgrade is truly painful and doesn't seem like there's a light at the end of the tunnel, then I do think the application is small enough that it's worth having a team decision around, can we rewrite, can we pause features to then shift over to a better code base and move from there? I, I don't think I've actually done a rewrite, though, a full one. I've heard about them, and I've watched the, some teams work on them. Read about them on the internet. Read about them. But I myself haven't been participating in one. So I'm curious, are there any other caveats you would be concerned about? So let's say we we go with the rewrite. What advice would you give? Uh, I think the main piece of advice is a feature-for-feature feature rewrite is a really complicated thing to do. It makes that end target extremely hard to hit. Adding features during a rewrite is probably the worst thing that we can possibly do. And it's similar to the advice in general, but uh, all the more so with a rewrite, I want to get that new version of the software in front of users as quickly as possible. That drift that we're talking about where we have two different versions of the application mm -hmm. and oh no, there's a production bug or there's a feature that was sold that we absolutely have to implement. I want to minimize that window of time where we're stuck in between those two versions where we're in that sort of danger zone where if a new feature that is absolutely necessary comes in that we have to implement it in two places and all of that. So I think that's the main consideration is how how aggressively can we cut the scope down such that if we do this rewrite, we now have a new version of this app that we can start moving people over to and make the real thing and, and actually start moving in that direction. So I'm curious when you mentioned getting it in front of users as fast as possible, do you have thoughts on how you would go about that? Like, would you add sort of like a beta opt-in and then start to like migrate users, but not force it upon them? Like you're not going to try to swap it out but let them know, hey, that we're working on the application, almost just being very upfront with them and saying, we are working on a new version of this software. 
and we'd love for you to start using the beta version or to test it out and then start the migration process that way. I think I would be purposeful about it. I would try and move some beta users over. I would definitely want to talk to them about it and be you know, somewhat engaged with them. It's interesting comparing like the Basecamp approach where Basecamp has made a few different versions and they just keep them running. So there's Basecamp 3 and Basecamp 2. And I don't know if Basecamp 1 is still running anywhere or if anyone's still on it. But I know at least 2 and 3 are still active because we use both complicated. I don't love that. But here we are. That uh, is fascinating to me. I read about that recently. Yeah. I love from the human perspective of they're like, we will honor what we sold you and we're mm-hmm. going to support what you expect in your workflow and you don't have to learn a new thing. But from a developer, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> it is an interesting data point, though, that the people behind Rails or the creator of Rails chooses to rewrite his app as opposed to migrate it forward. So take that data point as you will. But then the contrast I think of is Reddit and their recent pretty solid overhaul of the front end, at least. They made this big shift, and I think a lot of people have not really loved it. And so they've kept the old version of the site alive at old.reddit.com. And I personally have a Chrome extension that redirects to old.reddit.com because I vastly prefer the previous design. So... I think there are different approaches. I would probably recommend a purposeful beta group that you're working with directly, but I think it will vary from time to time. And then to switch it back to the other idea, if we're going with the slowly updating, do you have thoughts on how you would go about that? I'm sure there are like helpful blog posts that talk Mm -hmm. about updating, and then there's the Rails guides that also talk about how to upgrade versions Have you had experiences there? Some. I think the main thing in my mind is the test suite becomes paramount in that situation. And right now, knowing that the test suite's in a broken state, that would be priority one, is getting the test suite back to something that I trust. And then as I'm migrating forward in different versions, at least I've got that for some feedback as to whether or not things are working. So that's absolutely the most important thing. And beyond that, I think there are some good guides and pieces out there, but it is... A complicated process, but definitely doable, like GitHub's recent work going from their custom fork of Ruby and Rails, three something is where they forked off back to 6.0. And they're now running, I think, on master or they're at least simultaneously testing in CI against master of Rails. So it's definitely doable even at that scale. But it was a huge engineering effort on their part. So no easy answers. I definitely agree with starting with the migration path. And then if that seems too complicated, maybe considering the rewrite. But yeah, those are some considerations across them. I really like all your thoughts too with the rewrite, specifically regarding like the features and getting it in front of users. Because depending on where Dan's team is at, they may be interested in rethinking some of their features. So that may fit well into a rewrite. But yeah, I also love your sentiment about getting the test working first. So that way you have some confidence in whichever direction you go. Love tests. Well, thanks, Dan. That was a, a great question. I hope that was helpful. Well, uh, yeah, with that, I think we should probably wrap up. What do you think? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review on iTunes. It really helps other folks find the show, and it lets us know that you're listening and enjoying the episodes. To make it as easy as possible, we've included a link in the show notes that will take you straight to the Bike Shed listing in iTunes on your computer or phone. And from there, you can add your rating or review it in less than a minute. If you have feedback for this or any of the episodes, you can reach us at at underscore Bike Shed, or I'm at Chris Toomey on Twitter. Or me at S. Vicari. Or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Hello, I am Chris, and today I like JavaScript. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. 
Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.